This past week, I made up a word. Invented my own word. Ever done that? And then I discovered that I'm not the only person who's ever made up his own word. The dictionary of unword words exists. It's a listing of unofficial words. In fact, here are a few terms invented by ordinary people. Blamestorming. You know what blamestorming is? It's when you sit around trying to think of people you can blame for your mistakes. Blamestorming. Here's one. Bimple. You know what a bimple is, don't you? It's a big pimple. It's a bimple. Here's one of my favorites. Calorosity. It's kind of like curiosity, but calorosity is the desire to see the dessert menu even though you know you're on a diet and you know you shouldn't be ordering a dessert. But you just got that calorosity. Here's one. Cometicide. Cometicide. This is when the pastor deliberately tells a bad joke. He commits cometicide. Exasperin. Exasperin. It's, it's a bottle of aspirin sealed with one of those little irremovable cotton wads that you can't get out. And you just get exasperated with exasperin. Here's one. Five head. You know what a five head is, don't you? It's a forehead with a receding hairline. <laughs> He's got a five head. Here's one of my favorites. I've been using this this week. Garb paction. Garb paction. I love this word. It occurs when you're too lazy to tie the trash bag and take it outside. So you just cram the trash. You, you pack it down into the can, you know, so you don't have to take it out. It's called garb paction. Here's one. Memnets. Memnets are those little chipped and broken pieces of the M&M that are down in the bottom of the bag. The remnants of the M&Ms, they're called memnets. Here's one, negatile. Negatile is the area of the bathroom floor <laughs> where the scales weigh about one to five pounds lighter than anywhere else in the bathroom. It's the negatile. And if you're on a diet, you know where the negatiles are. Here's one, onosecond. Onosecond. This is the period of time between pressing the send button and then realizing that you really shouldn't have sent that email. It's an onosecond. Here's one, obliviate. Obliviate. This is an idiot that doesn't really know he's an idiot. He's just an obliviate. And then here's another one. You've heard of nostalgia. Well, nostralgia. Nostralgia is a reminder of the past brought on by specific smells. I just had a nostalgic feeling. Anyway, here is your pastor's own made-up word. Someone should add this to Wikipedia later this afternoon. Here's my word. It's the term Homiletics. Homiletics. Now, if you've ever attended Bible college or seminary, you're probably familiar with a similar 
term. Homiletics. In fact, in the Catholic Church, if you were raised in the Catholic Church, the official name for the sermon is the homily, right? Homiletics refers to the art of preaching. Schools for pastors have whole departments devoted to the subject. One seminary I read about offers 16 different courses in homiletics. But homiletics is when you take the power of biblical teaching and you add it to the dynamics of a small group of believers meeting in a home. Suddenly, the teaching and the fellowship are both enhanced. The Bible study becomes more pertinent and applicable, while the fellowship among the believers becomes more focused and spiritual. Homiletics generates tremendous power. Life change results. Beginning in the next few weeks, Calvary Chapel is going to launch a new emphasis, utilizing a new method, hoping for new results. Rather than just sit on our laurels and be content with the status quo, we want to unleash the power of homiletics. We want our church to be as strong as possible and to grow as much as possible. And we think this will help us achieve that goal. This morning, I'm going to explain to you our new approach after I provide you a biblical basis for what we're doing. Though the method is new to us, it's as old as Christianity. Today, I want to talk about homiletics. And here's where we'll start. The most powerful change agent on this planet is the Bible. Never underestimate the high priority that God places on the Scriptures. In Judaism, the name of God was considered so sacred. So much so that the rabbis thought of God's name as too holy to even write or speak. Did you know in Leviticus a man was actually stoned to death for blaspheming the name of God? God's name was highly revered. And yet, this is why Psalm 138 verse 2 is so stunning. For there we read, God magnifies His Word even above His name. That's how much God thinks of His Word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 unveils the Bible's enormous influence. There we read, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is alive and it's active. It's powerful. It's effective. It's surgical. It cuts right to the heart. You've got to know the Bible is no mere book. It has a life of its own. It's self-propelled. Isaiah 55 tells us that the Bible never returns void. In other words, it always accomplishes that for which it was sent. Men might fail, but the Bible never fails. God's Word lays bare our motive, and it challenges our assumptions, and it stirs up our faith, and it sets our feet on new paths. Martin Luther once wrote, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Come under its sway and the Bible will make you a different person. Psalm 119 verse 9 is one of my very favorite verses. There the psalmist asks this question. 
How can a young man cleanse his way? And I love the logic behind this verse. Notice the psalmist doesn't ask, how can a young child cleanse his way? Or a middle-aged woman or an old man cleanse his way? I mean, kids and grandmas and old geezers, they aren't really known as rebel rousers, are they? So you clean up the way of a grandma. No biggie. How dirty could it have been in the first place? But young men, oh my. Adolescent men are cocky and passionate and reckless and stubborn and hot-headed and hormonal and impulsive and obstinate and independent. I know this because I was one. Yet this is the point. If you can cleanse a young man's way, then you can affect anyone. So how do you cleanse a young man's way? Psalm 119 verse 9 tells us, By taking heed according to your word. This is why the Bible is so important. The Bible alone has the ability to renew a mind and transform a character and create a new outlook and break old habits and redirect passion and produce sensitivity and spawn self-discipline and develop faith. Paul assures us in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What can tame a young man's passion? <laughs> There's a thousand shortcuts. I mean, just pray over him, some will say. Cast the demon out of him. That's what needs to happen. Slay him in the spirit. Have him see a counselor. Enroll him in an accountability group. Get him in a program. The list goes on and on. But make no mistake about it. The only hope for the young man to live a pure and godly life is a steady diet of God's Word. Only the Bible can cleanse the young man's way. Once I received a letter from a member of our church. It was a keeper. Still got it. And this is what it read. There were lots of it, lots of parts of it, but this, it said this too. It said, thank you for teaching God's word and not a lot of other stuff. I like that. You know, we teach God's word, but how we do it is just as significant. You see, I don't just teach from the Bible. You know, some guys do this. They will pick a topic that they want to talk about, and then they'll find verses and scriptures to sort of support that topic. They're teaching from the Bible. That's not what we do. We teach the Bible. We examine the text in its context. We move through a book or a chapter of the Bible. We go verse by verse, and we let the Bible speak for itself. This is what we've just done through 1 Peter. Read Acts chapter 20. It's Paul's farewell to the elders of Ephesus. And there he tells them, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul had preached to them the whole Bible, not just part and parcel. He later said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is why we say it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. You need to teach the Bible and you need to teach the whole Bible. That's what we try to do here at Calvary Chapel. You know, churches are either like McDonald's or your mom's. Either like McDonald's or mom's. You go to McDonald's, you can get a Happy Meal. You can get one of those McFlurries. You can get junk food. Or you can go to mom's house. And you can get some meat and vegetables and stuff that's good for you. 
You see, Isaiah and Leviticus can taste like spinach compared to steak from Luke and ice cream from Revelation. But you need the whole menu, not just nibbles here and there. It's the whole Bible that provides a well-rounded spiritual diet. I want to feed you like your mother. I don't mind laboring in the kitchen to cook up a nutritious meal, but you've got to come to dinner. And the dinner hour here at Calvary Chapel is our Through the Bible study. On Sunday morning, we tackle certain books and we touch on vital passages, but we go line upon line, verse upon verse, book after book, chapter after chapter in our weekly Through the Bible study. This is the first half of homiletics, solid, thorough Bible teaching. I said earlier that Bible teaching is the most powerful change agent on the planet, and that's true. But the environment in which it's taught and studied is also a factor. You see, it's like flying a kite. You know, it's always fun to fly a kite. But it's more fun to fly a kite on a windy day. On a windy day, the kite launches easier and it sails higher. Environment matters. Likewise, you can read the Bible in an ivory tower all by yourself and you'll benefit. But study the scriptures with other believers in committed, caring relationships. Then discuss how to apply it practically. And then encourage each other to follow through. And then pray for one another as you do. When all that happens, it's like Bible study on steroids. This is one of the reasons the early church saw Christianity spread like wildfire. The first Christians harnessed this small group dynamic. They stood on the word, but they dispensed it with these small group factors. They took seriously their call to love one another and to be the family of God. And they sensed they could best function like family if they were meeting in a home. People were less likely to slip through the cracks. Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're given a description of life in the first church, the church in Jerusalem. And there it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice at the top of their agenda was consistent Bible teaching. That's what we've been discussing. That's the first ingredient of homiletics. But along with the Bible study came fellowship and the breaking of bread or communion and worship and even prayer. The early Christians also captured the interactions that were conducive to a smaller group meeting in a home. Notice later in the chapter, verse 46, Luke sums up life in the early church. He says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Notice they had two venues where they met. Christians had these big corporate meetings like our Sunday morning services. In the temple, they could assemble large crowds. They could accommodate the crowds. And when they were there together, the believers were reminded that they were not alone. They gained strength from the numbers. They realized that there were more like us and who believed on the same plane as we believe. Even today, Christians need to be reminded that we're part of the larger body of Christ, that there's others in this battle with us. This is why Hebrews warns us about forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You see, if we subdivide into little house churches, we can grow introverted and self-absorbed. As Christians, we're one body. 
We have a group identity that makes our impact stronger and our light burn brighter. But the believers in Jerusalem, they also went from house to house. They met in the temple, but then they went from house to house. They met in these smaller groups, these little personal eddies. Christians also gathered in homes where they could interact and get to know one another. They still studied the Bible, but they helped each other apply what they learned. They lived out their faith together in community, in a family. This meant that the older women taught the younger women. The married couples encouraged the newlyweds. The older parents mentored the younger parents on how to raise their kids. Some people were role models. Other people were understudies. But all believers found a place where they belonged. The church enjoyed a family life that promoted spiritual growth. Understand, Christianity emphasizes what the theologians, theologians call incarnational truth. The word carne is Latin for the word meat or flesh. Eat a bowl of chili con carne. You know what that is? That's chili with meat. Which, by the way, is really the only kind of chili. is chili with meat. I love chili con carne. The word incarnate, what does it mean? It means in meat or in the flesh. When Jesus came to earth, he came incarnate. John's gospel puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the incarnation. But you see, much of God's truth is communicated incarnate. Much of God's truth is embodied within human beings. God wants all Christians, you and me, to be bearers of incarnational truth. He wants us to embody His love and His grace and His wisdom and His mercy. He wants us to show the world, not just through words, but through our deeds and through our actions, the love of God and the truth of Jesus. This is why to really know the Word of God and the truth of God, it requires that you be in community. You see, you really learn about grace, not just in the abstract, but in a family, by rubbing shoulders with gracious people, with people who extend grace and with people that need grace. I believe this is why podcasts will never replace preachers. I'm so glad of this. Because it's not just a message that God sends. He adds voice to the message through a messenger. He embodies the truth incarnate or in the flesh. God doesn't just want us to hear or read about truth. He wants us to see it lived out. This means that even in an age of electronic media, the church is still relevant. Fellowship is still vital. Small groups are still very essential. There are certain lessons and truths that Christians cannot learn apart from one another. We grow best when we grow together in groups. When Paul wrote to his friend Philemon, he greeted him, his wife, his son, and, quote, the church in your house. Apparently, the church in Colossae met and studied God's Word and worshipped in the home of Philemon. And this wasn't just a random event. Church historians tell us that for the first 275 years of its existence, the church met in small groups in people's homes. 
This means the most successful period of church expansion occurred when fellowship of believers was based in a home setting. Big groups were certainly needed, but the home provided an informal and friendly and inviting and less threatening atmosphere that was well suited for spiritual growth. Let me tell you what I have observed happening in our church. In our church. You see, every church consists of three groups of people. There's the crowd, there's the core, and then there's the community. The crowd, they show up on Sunday morning. They come to church when it's convenient. When there's nothing else to do, they're committed. But if the lake calls, splash, splash, splash. Or if they get free tickets to the game, Adios, amigos. Hasta la vista, baby. See you at Easter. See you at Christmas. You see, you don't know if a member of the crowd stops coming because nobody ever got to know them in the first place. That They were just a ship passing through the night. Whereas the core members of a church are just the opposite. They're here every time the doors are open. In fact, they stay for both services. If a core person isn't here, you know it immediately. The five jobs they volunteer for suddenly are left undone. These are the people who laugh at my jokes, even when they're not funny. Even when I'm up here committing comedicide, they're still laughing. These people just love to hang out at church. I mean, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you've got to send them home. You've got somewhere to live here now. Go. But you see, in between the crowd and the core, there's a community of believers. These folks are committed to Jesus and they're connected to their church. The community group may not be as out front or as visible, but they have found a place in the church. These are people that they they know other people and, and they've allowed other people to get to know them. If they miss a Sunday, they have a few friends who will give them a call. If they miss a friend at church, they care enough to pick up the phone and return the favor. For this community group, Calvary Chapel has become a place where they belong. The community gives and receives. They serve and they're served. They love and they're loved. They care for folks and folks care for them. And here's what I see happening in our church. I don't mean to be negative here. I'm just keeping it real. Our crowd remains steady. Our core remains strong. But our community has shrunk. We can attract a crowd. And we can keep a core group strong and healthy. But we're having problems expanding the community circle of our church. This in-between group. And there are two reasons. For some people, it's a lack of food. For other folks, it's a lack of fellowship. I mean, to move from the crowd to the community, you have to, first of all, be confident in your faith, and you also have to be conscious of your need for others. This is why some of you need to feed your faith. Your problem is that you're malnourished. Sunday morning isn't cutting it. It's not enough for you. You see, you've got some catching up to do. I mean, you weren't raised in the church. You need some remedial work. 
You need an accelerated study of the scriptures. You could benefit from the through the Bible study. Still, others of you need to be in fellowship. You don't need more Bible study per se, but you need the practice of living it out with other people. You need some encouragement and some examples to apply what you know. And you see, up until now, if I made a suggestion that would help you both, it would involve another night of the week. I mean, if you're getting fed on a Sunday night with the through the Bible study, I'd have to tell you to find a home fellowship. Take up another night of the week and find a home fellowship. If you're part of a home fellowship already, I'd need to tell you, hey, you need to be coming on Sunday nights. But that would take another night of the week. And I don't know about you, but I don't have another night of the week. How many people here are busy? How many of you live busy lives? It's hard for me to carve out of my schedule another night of the week. This is where homiletics kicks in. Hey, why not just consolidate what we need into one night? Feed and fellowship at one time. The kind of Bible teaching you're accustomed to receiving at Calvary Chapel with the advantages of a small group. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because beginning in September, we're going to combine our through the Bible study with the dynamics of home fellowship. There will no longer be a Sunday night Bible study at this building. Instead, there will be multiple through the Bible groups meeting every night of the week except Saturday. In some corner of the globe. One group is going to be meeting at the Chapman's house on Sunday night at 6.30. Here's how it'll work. You'll get there about 6.20 or so, and Donna will have guacamole and chips out on the counter. She loves, she makes the best guacamole. She'll have the guacamole and chips out. You'll come in, you'll you'll be eating guacamole, you'll be getting it all around your mouth and all, and and spilling it on your shirt. And then you'll just say, you'll say hello, probably before you eat the guacamole, you'll say hello. And you'll flop down on the couch in front of Pastor James's big screen. And then right at 6.30, James is going to pop in a DVD. My mug will appear on the screen with a few announcements. Then we'll have worship. And we're going to be getting video from Calvary Chapel worship leaders all over the country. It's going to be amazing. Then I'll take the next 45 minutes and I'll study through one to two chapters of the New Testament. Afterwards, James will have some discussion questions that that will provoke some interaction and some application. The group will end in prayer, and then everyone will crash the refrigerator, finish up the guacamole, hang out until Donna runs you off. Of course, you might not want to go to the Chapman's on Sunday night, especially if Tech ever beats Georgia again, because they can get very obnoxious when that happens. Instead, you might live in the Grayson area and have kids. And it's more convenient. It makes more sense for you to go to the Bagwell's house on Wednesday night. Or maybe you live in Lawrenceville and you choose to hang out with the Davies on Friday night. Maybe you're newlyweds. And over the years, you've seen Billy and Polly. And you've admired their healthy marriage You're amazed that Polly hasn't killed the man yet. That five-headed guy. 
And you know, you might want to go to Billy and Polly's house just to kind of watch them, just to kind of learn about marriage so that you too can have a healthy marriage. Or maybe you have had the privilege of tasting one of Soshi's treats in school, you know, and, and around the church here and all. You live in Norcross, but it doesn't matter. You're going to the Rivera's house in Snellville because you know what comes out of her kitchen. You see, here's what's going to happen. You'll get the same Bible study content that you've been getting on Sunday nights, but you'll enjoy it and be able to apply it in a home setting with people who are committed to doing life together. This means that your faith will not only grow strong, but you'll be cultivating relationships with people who'll be there for you in a tough time. You can be there for them in a time of trial. You'll learn the Bible, but you'll also learn how the Scriptures have helped shape Charles Yeager into a better man. That's what Carrie tells me. And have helped Don and Jan Liesenfeld raise their kids. And have enabled Daryl and Twyla Yoder to be good witnesses at work. And have taught Paul McGinnis how to run an honest business. You'll be learning God's Word and building relationships with like-minded believers. It's called homiletics. Through the Bible, but in a home setting. That's why we're calling them TBGs, through the Bible groups. Now the videos each week will be shot most weeks at Calvary 316 on Wednesday nights. Here's why. Our little church up in Barrow County, it doesn't need home groups. We are one big home group. That's how small we are. All those guys have are Sunday mornings. They lack Ladies Bible study and men of valor and free birds and discipleship groups and ladies nights out and all the activities that we here at Stone Mountain take for granted. Calvary 316 needs a midweek get together. And this will serve as the backdrop for the videos that we'll be showing in the Through the Bible groups. The Lord has blessed us with some media savvy guys in Zach and Casey and we believe that we can produce a well done DVD for our groups. Now, if you've been coming on Sunday nights, you know that right now we're in the book of Isaiah. And we'll be reaching a stopping point in a couple of weeks. The last Sunday in August will be our last Sunday night service here in this building. Then beginning the week of September the 12th, our Through the Bible groups will kick off in the New Testament, in the book of Luke. We'll dive into Luke and then Acts and then Romans and then right on through the New Testament. When we're done, we'll backtrack to Isaiah. Now, here are a few other details. Beginning August the 12th, both the Strand and Link are taking over Sunday nights. All of a sudden, our teenagers will have the building all to themselves. First thing they want are the drums. They're going to be rocking out in the sanctuary. They'll have worship together, and then they'll meet separately as high school and as middle school groups. For the adults, Sunday nights here will be replaced by 11 through the Bible groups. Meetings in homes located among eight different school clusters. All of our TBGs will try to stay on the same schedule. And thus we've sort of built into the calendar a few off weeks where groups can catch up if they fall behind. We want to continue through the Bible together as one church. This way, if you miss your normal group, you can attend another TBG that week and catch up. Now, next Sunday morning, August 22nd, we're having a TBG fair 
where you'll be able to meet each of our host couples. You'll be able to get to know them. You'll be able to check them out. You'll be able to uh, find out where they're located. You'll find out details about their group, whether they offer childcare, etc., etc. And let me suggest it may take a few tries for you to find the right group. I mean, Reed Engel has crushed defensive linemen with one hand. Ramus Fields, he likes to pull off the side of the road, get out and help little old ladies across the street. I mean, these are two different guys now. And this is why you may have to check out Reed's group and then Ramus's group to decide where you best fit in. Now, I need to share my heart with you this morning. For me, personally, nothing about this new format changes my life. My workload remains the same. Every week I prepare for two Bible studies and I pastor two churches, among other things. And I love what I do. Despite some trials along the way, I'm excited about what God is doing through our churches. In fact, for the last 30 years, I have stayed by my post. And I've tried to lead and feed this church faithfully. It's been quite a ride. You know, God's will is full of surprises. But here's my approach. Seldom do I just present my plans to God and ask Him to rubber stamp them. I listen for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. I really do. I try to discern which way God's wind is blowing, and then I lift ourselves in that direction. I want to be led by the Holy Spirit, not motivated by my own agenda. I, I love the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistine army heard that David had become king of Israel, they immediately marched against him. They deployed, they deployed their troops in the valley of Rephaim. When David heard what was happening, he inquired of the Lord. He said, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And that's when God replied, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And true to his word, God allowed David to rout the Philistines. David's army won a great victory. But you see, these Philistines, they were slow learners. For once they recovered, they tried the very same tactic. Again, they deployed their troops against David in the valley of Rephaim. Understand, this was the same enemy, the same strategy. David led the same army on the same battlefield, same circumstances, basically the same time frame. If you were David, what would you have done? I mean, to me, this would be a no-brainer. I've already prayed about this once. I don't need to pray about it again. Why would God answer me any differently this time? I would assume that God would give me the same marching orders. But I would have assumed wrong. Thankfully, David didn't assume. Again, he inquired of the Lord. And this is what God told him. You shall not go up, but circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. David obeyed and again defeated the Philistines. But you see, this story reveals our tendency. So often, we are creatures of habit. We settle into a routine. We like to do the same things in the same way with the same people. No wonder we're often plagued by the same results. 
You see, God's message never changes, but His methods often do. God told David to circle behind the enemy and wait for the sound of the marching in the treetops, the wind rustling the leaves in the top of these trees. Like David, we too have to wait on the wind. We have to be led by the Spirit of God. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Sorry about that. Most of you are too young to even know what that means. Never forget the seven last words of the dying church. We have always done it that way. God is always up to something new and different. Unlike us, God is bound to no tradition. Try to put God in a box and He'll blow out the sides. He's always reaching out to new people in new ways. You see, you can't live the Christian life and be resistant to change. It's part of the fabric of Christianity. When the wind blows, we have to set sail and anchor up. You see, the fall of the year is a season of vivid change. The green we've lived with for six months or so will soon turn red and yellow and purple. Colors will explode. Believe it or not, the heat will even dissipate. The breeze will start to blow. The air will get chilly again. And this fall is shaping up to be a season of change at Calvary Chapel. And change can be tough at first. Initially, it can be painful. Always remember this. There is no growth without change. But there's no change without loss. Some loss. And there's no loss without some pain. God wants us to grow. He wants our church to grow. And if we want to follow this Holy Spirit, it's necessary that we're willing to adjust. I love what hockey player Wayne Gretzky once said. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. Hey, that's how I want to lead. It's my job to look ahead and see where God is taking us next. And here's what I see. On a good Sunday morning, oh, we'll have maybe 500 or so adults worship with us. But then on that Sunday night, we might have 90 people. And yet Sunday night is the most important study of the week. We have even fewer folks in our home fellowships and in our small groups. It's time to shake things up. Let's make it easier for people to take advantage of their opportunities. Let's help them streamline their schedule. Let's consolidate nights and combine the through the Bible with the home fellowship dynamics. Hey, it's just simple homiletics. At our last through the Bible study, we had 75 people. My goal is 200 people by the year end in our TBG groups. We started with 11 groups. I hope we have 20 very soon. In fact, there may be someone here this morning who'd like to host a group. I trust every one of you will come. I hope you'll invite your friends. That you'll grab your neighbors and bring them. It may be that a person you've invited is uncomfortable at church. But, but you know what? They might just be open to visiting in someone's home. I believe that God is leading us into a new season at Calvary Chapel. A season of growth and expansion. I believe He wants to make us stronger. I'm going to be around this morning to answer any questions that you might have. We're going to have a baptism. But after the baptism, I'll be happy to, to talk with you. I won't hug you, I'll be sopping wet, but 
but I'll talk with you. But see, I'm hoping that you will take a class in homiletics. I hope you'll see the benefit of this. I hope you'll see the life change that will result if you step up and join a TBG. That's what I hope you'll do. That's what I pray you'll do.